Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 31, Genesis chapters 33 and 34. Okay, turn your Bibles tonight to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33, we're going to read it from beginning to end together. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 36. Genesis chapter 33. Yaakov raised his eyes and looked. And there was Esau coming and 400 men with him. So Yaakov divided the children between Leah Rachel and the two slave girls, putting the slave girls and their children first, Leah and her children second, and Rachel and Yosef last. Then he himself passed on ahead of them and prostrated himself on the ground seven times before approaching his brother. Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Esau looked up, and on seeing the women and children, he asked, Who are these with you? And Yaakov answered, The children God has graciously given to your servant. Then the slave girls approached with their children, and they prostrated themselves. Leah too. And her children approached and prostrated themselves. And last came Yosef and Rachel. And they prostrated themselves. And Esau asked, What was the meaning of this procession of droves I encountered? And he answered, It was to win my Lord's favor. And Esau replied, I have plenty already. My brother, keep your possessions for yourself. And Yaakov said, No, please. If I have now won your favor, then accept my gift. Just seeing your face has been like seeing the face of God now that you have received me. So please accept the gift I have brought you. For God has dealt kindly with me and I have enough. Then he urged him until he accepted it. And Esau said, Let's break camp and get going. I'll go first. And Yaakov said to him, My Lord knows that the children are small and the sheep and cattle suckling their young concern me. Because if they overdrive them even one day, all the flocks will die. Instead, please let my Lord go on ahead of his servant. I, I will travel more slowly at the pace of the cattle ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and see her. And Esau replied, then let me leave with you some of the people I have with me. But Yaakov said, there's no need for my Lord to be so kind to me. So Esau left that day to return to Seor. Yaakov went on to Sukkot, where he built himself a house and put up shelters for his cattle. That's why they call this place Sukkot. Having traveled from Padan Aram, Yaakov arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan, and set up camp near the city. From the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for 100 pieces of silver the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent. Then he put up an altar, which he called El Elohe Yisrael, God, the God of Israel. Well, these dizzying events of the night before that we talked about last week had prepared Jacob just in the nick of time, I might add, for what was coming next. 
The question of Jacob's and his family line survival was about to be answered when he spotted Esau coming over the hill leading his band of 400 men. He placed his family, it says, in a specified order that, that probably has some kind of meaning. But the only one I can, uh, I can draw from it all right, is that he put the least important people to his way of thinking up front and the most important to the rear. That is, he put his concubines and their children up front in immediate harm's way and his most beloved wife, Rachel, and her child, already his favorite, Joseph, at the rear because they might have had a chance of escape if he saw attacked. Okay. Well, then Jacob ran to the front of him, it says, and prostrated himself. He bowed low to his brothers. As a matter of fact, actually, he lay on the ground face down and he bowed seven times, it says, and he waited for the shoe to fall. All right. I mean, this was absolute capitulation. By Middle Eastern standards, Jacob presented himself and his entire clan to Esau as subject to Esau's mercy, mercy or wrath. Right? And the irony of this situation is really pretty hard-hitting because the blessing of Isaac upon his two sons was, at this moment in history, exactly reversed. Because Jacob's blessing, rather Isaac's blessing, was that Jacob would be master over his brothers. All right. And Esau's was that he'd be under the yoke of his kin. Instead, Jacob has just laid his life at the feet of his brother Esau. Well, fortunately, Esau's forgiven him. And so the two brothers reconcile, and the years had softened Esau's anger, just as Rebekah, the twin's mother, had said would eventually happen. And the unbelievably generous gift offering to Esau by Jacob showed Esau the complete sincerity and repentance of Jacob for his misdeeds. Now, in, in complete Mideastern style greeting, with the greatest respect, Jacob offers all these gifts to his brother and he introduces his family. Now Esau at first refuses the gifts and they go back and forth, but he eventually accepts. Jacob is wise, though. All right? And even after Esau has been gracious, gracious, Jacob continues to talk with Esau as an inferior talking to his superior. By the way, all the stuff we see here... Um, the Middle Eastern custom demands that all gifts offered must be at first refused. Okay, before, of course, they're finally accepted. Okay, this little kabuki dance, all right, that we see going on here with Jacob offering and Esau refusing and then finally accepting couldn't have gone any other way. And there's no particular exceptional spiritual meaning to this. Now, Esau now figures that Jacob and his clan are going to come and join him in his own land of Edom, where Mount Seir is, 
And so he offers to accompany his kin along the way. Jacob says that's not workable because these hardened Bedouin desert dwellers would move at a pace far too much for the herds and flocks that Jacob has to drive in front of him. So Esau offers an armed escort. Jacob refuses that as well. And he says he'll trust God to protect him. Esau agrees. He leaves for home, journeying south towards Edom. Now, of course, in reality, Jacob had no intention of following Esau into Edom unless he'd been forced to, All right, which had been a distinct possibility in his mind. In fact, the cunning that had always been Jacob's, now called Israel's, earmark is evident as he implies to Esau, if not outright says, all right, that he and his family indeed are going to join Esau and Edom. Another deception to be sure. Okay. Rather, once Esau and his troops leave, Jacob turns and heads north. All right, back to quite near the area where this wrestling match with the, with the angel took place. Into land that is eventually going to become um, territory of his son Gad. Right up in this area of the land of Canaan. Notice that it's on the, on the um, east side of the Jordan River. And he stops apparently for a couple of years. And he names the place Sukkot. Meaning booths or huts. Because he built these shelters for his family and some of the animals on a temporary basis. I mean, this is not where he intended on settling down. Well, in some amount of time for which we're not privy, now Hebrew tradition is that it was 18 months, Jacob moves from Sukkot across the Jordan to Shechem. All right, the same place his grandfather Abraham had come to when he first entered Canaan. And notice that once again, we see history repeat itself. But you know, this is quite a changed place from the time when Abraham and Sarah camped on its lovely grounds. There was no city. There wasn't even a village at the time of Abraham and Sarah. It was just a place. It wouldn't even have been called Shechem at that time. I mean... Let me explain and give you a little tip about understanding the Bible. If you and I were to talk about the Chumash Indians that inhabited the Los Angeles basin out in Southern California long before the Mexicans even arrived, you would have no trouble with me referring to it as Los Angeles as I just did because you know where that is. Okay. I, I, it certainly wasn't called Los Angeles in those days. And I'm sure you're well aware of that, but it's simply a way for me to communicate to you um, the area I'm talking about. Okay. It, it's the same way in the Bible. Since it was in Moses' era that the scripture we're reading here in Genesis was first written down as a comprehensive document, it was looking back in time, some five to six hundred years. So in Moses' era, Shechem was a well-established and widely known city. Therefore, when we're told in Genesis 
that Abraham arrived at Shechem, it was just an easy and common way of identifying the place using contemporary terms. In fact, because the various books of the Old Testament were written over a span of about a thousand years, city and place names came and went. Okay? I mean, places and cities may have been called one thing in the earliest books of the Old Testament, but several hundred years later, they were called something else. Therefore, we're going to find the same place given two or more different names in the Bible because at times they're talking about the current name, other times they're talking about an earlier name. But now here in Jacob's time, a walled city had erupted. And there he purchased some land from the sons of Shechem's king, King Hamor. Now, King Hamor was from one of the many tribes of Canaan. And his particular tribe was called the Hivites. Right. Now, we're also going to find out here that the city was named after one of King Hamor's sons, Shechem. Now, rather than live inside the city walls, we're told that Jacob pitched his tent well outside the city walls. I mean, Jacob's a shepherd. Living inside a city isn't anything he would do. Okay. On the other hand, living next to a city gave him an opportunity to make a mutual security treaty for his family's protection and to have nearby the staples of life. Now the amount he pays for the land outside the city walls is important all right? because it records A, that he did purchase the land and that B, paid a proper price for it so he couldn't be accused of cheating. Okay? In principle, this operated the same way as Abraham's purchase of the cave of Machpelah at his, for that burial place so many years earlier. Every element for proof of permanent ownership without dispute is provided in these passages. Okay, now, this was going to prove to be important at a later time because we're told in Genesis 48 that this very piece of land that it says that he purchased he willed to his son Joseph. Okay. Further, Joseph was initially buried at that spot after the Exodus because the Israelites brought his remains with them, although apparently his bones were later moved to yet another spot. Now, what's even more interesting is that in the future, from this time here in Genesis, at this very spot, this little piece of land just outside the walls of Shechem, Yeshua would demonstrate a principle that most of us in this room should be very thankful for. We're going to pause and read a portion of that story because I just love connecting all right, the acts of Jesus with what goes on here so early in the Old Testament. So turn your Bibles to John 4. John chapter 4. If you've got the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1333. John chapter 4. And we're going to read verse 1 through 14. 
When Yeshua learned that the Perushim, the Pharisees, had heard he was making and immersing more Talmudim, all right, that, that is, uh, disciples, than Yochanan, John, although it was not Yeshua himself who was immersed, but his Talmudim, Yeshua left Judah and set out again for the Galil. This meant he had to pass through Shomron, or it might be Samaria in your Bibles, or it might even be Sushar. He came to a town in Shomron called Shechem, near the field Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Yeshua, exhausted from his travel, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A woman from Shomron came to draw some water, and Yeshua said to her, Give me a drink of water. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The woman from Shomron said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for water from me, a woman of Shomron? For Jews didn't associate with people from Shomron. Yeshua answered her, If you knew God's gift, that is, who it is saying to you, give me a drink of water, then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you don't have a bucket, and the well's deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, uh, Jacob are you? He gave us this well and drank from it, and so did his sons and his cattle. And Yeshua answered, Everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I'll give him will never be thirsty again. On the contrary, the water I give him will become a spring of water inside him, welling up into eternal life. At this moment in history, Shechem is going by a couple of different names, depending on whether you were Idumean, whether you were Jewish and spoke Hebrew, um, depending on what language. And you, you'll have names varying from Sishar to Shomron to Shechem. But they're all one in the same place. Right, and here, this entire scene of the Samaritan woman at the well, this is the very well that we're reading about now, the very place we're reading about now in Genesis 33. I mean, it is interesting, is it not, that the first non-Jewish person to be offered a drink of the living water that brings everlasting life was a woman and a hated Samaritan. And it occurred at the very first place Jacob settled when he came back into the Promised Land. By the way, today Shechem is in the West Bank goes by the Arab name of Nablus, right? and the Palestinians claim that they've always held this land. Feeling now that he's come to a place that is likely his clan's new and permanent home, Jacob now called Israel erects an altar. He calls it El Elohe Yisrael. The Hebrew words mean El, the God of Israel. They're not going to be staying here very long, though. Let's move on. Let's read Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34. 
One time, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Yaakov, went out to visit the local girls. And Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hevi, the local ruler, saw her, grabbed her, raped her, and humiliated her. But actually, he was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He fell in love with the girl and tried to win her affection. Shechem spoke with his father Hamor and said, Get this girl for me. I want her to be my wife. When Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob restrained himself until they came. Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Yaakov to speak with him, just as Yaakov's sons were coming in from the field. And when they heard what had happened, the men were saddened and were very angry at the outrage this man had committed against Israel by raping Yaakov's daughter, something that is simply not done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem's heart is set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife and intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You will live with us. The land will be available to you. You'll live, do business, and acquire possessions here. Then Shechem said to her father and brothers, Only accept me, and I'll give whatever you tell me. Ask as large a bride price as you like. I'll pay whatever you tell me. Just let me marry the girl. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamorah's father deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to him, We can't do it, because it would be a disgrace to give our sister to someone who hasn't been circumcised. Only on this condition will we consent to what you're asking for, that you become like us by having every male among you get circumcised. Then we'll give our daughters to you, and we'll take your daughters for ourselves, and we'll live with you and become one people. But if you won't do as we say and get circumcised, then we'll take our daughter and go away. What they did seemed fair to Hamor and Shechem, the son of Hamor, and the young man did not put off doing what was asked of him, even though he was the most respected member of his father's family because he so much wanted Yaakov's daughter. Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the entrance of their city and spoke with its leading men. These people are peaceful towards us. Therefore, let them live in the land and do business in it. For as you can see, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives for ourselves, and we'll give them our daughters. But the people will consent to live with us and become one people only on this condition, that every male among us gets circumcised as they themselves are circumcised. Won't their cattle and their possessions and all their animals be ours? Only let's consent to what they ask. Then they'll live with us. Everyone going outside the city's gate listened to Hamor and Shechem, his son. So every male was circumcised, every one that went out of the gate of the city. On the third day after the circumcision, when they were in pain, two of Yaakov's sons, Shimon and Levi, Dinah's brothers took their swords, boldly descended on the city, and slaughtered all the males. They killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with their swords. They took Dinah out of Shechem's house and left. 
Then the sons of Jacob entered over the dead bodies of those who had been slaughtered and plundered the city in reprisal for defiling their sister. They took their flocks, cattle, donkeys, and everything else, whether in the city or in the field, everything they owned. Their children and wives they took captive, and they looted whatever was in the houses. But Yaakov said to Shimon and Levi, You have caused me trouble by making me stink in the opinion of the local inhabitants, the Canaani and the Prizi. Since I don't have many people, they'll align themselves together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and all my household. And they replied, Should we let our sister be treated like a whore? That's some story. Well, Dinah, Jacob's daughter by Leah, was about 15 years old, according to most Bible historians. And we're told that one day she went into the city to see or to visit some of the local girls. Now, the Hebrew word used here where it says she went in to visit or see is ra'ah. Right, which carries with it the sense of wanting to explore or to learn something or even to participate. It, it, it's, it's the idea of wanting to even do something intellectual. Okay? Josephus says she went in to join them with one of their many pagan feasts celebrated by the Hivites. Now, Shechem, son of the king, sees Dinah, he likes what he sees. And he responds by raping her. And this whole story carries with it this tone of a naive, foolish young girl getting in way over her head. Right? And then a series of events unfolds that's beyond her youthful capability to recognize as dangerous, let alone her being able to control it. Now, we, we have to understand that Dinah was now a girl of marriageable age. She was a virgin all right, and would never have been allowed to go unchaperoned into a city. That she did this was a blatant act of rebellion and it led to horrible things. Okay. Now apparently, the king's son was in lust with Dinah. And the Bible says that he loved her, but at the same time, the scripture is really just stating his side of the story. Okay, a man in love with a woman wouldn't take her by force. Okay, but as a prince, he felt he could do as he darn well placed. Certainly no woman would dare refuse his advances. In any case, the prince wants to make things a little better by marrying Dinah. So his father, the king, goes to speak with Jacob, who's now already received word of the violation of his daughter. And about the same time, Jacob's sons, who were out in the fields, got word of it, and they came back to their tents together furious. The king addresses Jacob and his sons, and he explains that he and his sons would like to make things right by his son marrying Dinah and then their two peoples intermarrying and eventually just becoming one big happy family. And there's so much we could talk about here. But I'd really like to just make a couple of points. First, was that the king of Shechem 
would quickly try to repair matters showed both wisdom and that the king was not a typical monarch of that day. Okay? It's, it's long been suspected that the city of Shechem was not only occupied by Hivites, but by several different tribes. Okay? Hamor ruled over a confederation of tribes. And so a lot of diplomacy was called for in order for him to maintain his power. Second of all, we need to grasp that the kingdom of Shechem was large. Okay? The city was, at the time of, of uh, Jacob, basically the seat of government over a pretty widespread area. The city itself, which is right here, the center of this red ring I've drawn that roughly is the outline of the size of his kingdom, the city wasn't particularly large, but boy, the landmass it ruled over was. Right? Um, ancient Akkadian and Egyptian records tell of a kingdom of Shechem that comprised an area of nearly a thousand square miles. Right? And it started a little south of Jerusalem and went as far north as Megiddo. There can be no mistake that the king and kingdom we're currently dealing with here is the same one that those ancient records are describing. So Hamor was more a chieftain than a king and he had to be politically adept to run this very diverse kingdom. And in verse 7, the last few words say that this thing, meaning this rape, was a thing not to be done. Okay. What occurred here was illegal in the Middle East. And it required that the male compensate the family of the girl because now she was ruined. Okay. To try and find a husband for a girl who had lost her virginity was near to impossible. Okay. And in a few more verses we're going to see the king offer a great deal more than the normal bride price for Dinah. Not out of a sense of responsibility, but because he was legally obligated. You know, what really turned Jacob's sons to rage, however, was that the king didn't even make mention of the crime his son had committed against Dinah. It was as though it had never happened. Okay, even more. Dinah was being held hostage inside the city, which is no doubt why the king felt brave enough to confront Jacob in such a flippant manner. Well, in the narrative that follows, we don't hear Jacob reply to the king. Instead, it's Jacob's sons that give their conditions to the king's request. And the king, his sons, and all his family, and all the city's males must be circumcised before Dinah can marry Shechem. Why did all the men have to be circumcised? Because it was forbidden for anyone to be a member of Israel, which is what the king in essence said would result, that is the two peoples being joined, without submitting to the terms of the Abrahamic covenant. And to be a member of that covenant required circumcision, but that was a ruse because they had blood on their minds. They were employing what they had learned well, 
from their father Jacob, now called Israel, deceit. They knew full well what the adult males of ancient times experienced after being circumcised. A lot of pain, infection, and a resulting weakness and malaise. King Hamor, on the other hand, is no better. He calls a public meeting and he speaks to the city's males and he tells them that he wants them to be circumcised so that these two peoples can unite. Now they couldn't have been too thrilled about this because in those days circumcision of an adult was a pretty grueling process. All right? So he makes it sound like a good thing for them. But primarily it's for the purpose of wealth accumulation for himself. Because in verse 23, the king says to the men of his city, Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals become ours? Hardly. It will become his. Now the chieftain argues very eloquently for his point of view. And he says that these people are our friends. A term that would indicate that a treaty between Shechem and the Israelites already existed. So to turn down Jacob's terms for this deal would have been an affront. Well, in verse 24, we're told that all the males of Shechem are circumcised. They comply. And three days later, at the height of their discomfort and with an infection setting in, the brothers Simeon and Levi, Shimon and Levi, went around the city killing every male, all of whom were currently disabled. Okay. This included killing the king and his sons. They also rescued Dinah. And then after that, after Simeon and Levi had finished murdering everybody, Jacob's other sons joined in by looting the now defenseless city. Sounds like New Orleans, doesn't it? So they not only took possessions, you'll notice... They took people. Okay, this was common in those days. The taking of people added to the strength and power of one's own tribe. And don't think for a minute that Israel didn't do the same thing. They did. Now understand that it was the tribes of Simeon and Levi that went around killing every male. Okay, the men, the two men, Simeon and Levi, certainly led them. But they had by now several male servants and probably a few sons who participated. And I suspect that some men from other tribes participated as well because it would have taken more than just a few men to kill all the townspeople. And I suspect that it was probably done guerrilla style, house to house, so that no one was the wiser until their own demise came. Well, when Jacob finds out what his sons have done, he's heartbroken. He's furious. And he tells them that he's become a stench to the Canaanites and the Perizzites as a result of their action. And by the way, it's thought that the Perizzites aren't really a specific tribe, but just a general name for a group of unnamed tribes that lives in the hill country of Canaan, but they're certainly of Canaanite origin. Now let's remember here that the Hivites, who were the ruling tribe of Shechem, were one of the many tribes that emanated from Canaan, son of Ham, grandson of Noah. 
That is, they were all interrelated and probably also had a mutual protection treaty among themselves. Jacob tells his sons that now that they've done this, many tribes are going to come against them and they're going to have no chance of victory. They'll be so outmanned. His boys are still unrepentant about their dirty deed. Well, later on, Simeon and Levi are going to be further publicly shamed for their bloodlust and violence. In Genesis 49, when Jacob was on his deathbed and dishing out blessings, what would prove to be prophetic blessings, to each of his sons, Simeon and Levi, he gave this. Listen to this. Genesis 49. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let my glory be unite let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger for its fierce, and their wrath for its cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now it's interesting that Levi became priests and temple tenders. Okay. The two primary jobs of Levi would be as butchers and sacrificial of sacrificial animals and as armed guards of the temple and its grounds. Bloody and violent jobs. The Levites would receive no land allotment of the territory of the promised land. Rather, they were going to be scattered about each of the 12 territories, just as the blessing said would happen. Simeon was going to be given a small piece of territory surrounded completely by Judah right? and was one of the first tribes to become absorbed by another Israelite tribe, the one that surrounded it, Judah. Now, before we move on to chapter 55, uh, chapter 35, which I think we'll do next week now, let me bring up one important issue. God was not going to let a marriage between Dinah and Shechem occur. He was not going to allow a mixing of the Hebrews with these pagans. Okay? There is no indication that Jacob was for it at all. In fact, no indication that his th sons thought it was a good idea because their only goal in appearing to agree to the proposal was to find a way to extract revenge. The effect of the joining of Jacob, Israel's family, with that of the Hivites would have been to reunite that which God had divided and separated. Okay. It would have united the blessed line of Shem, which was Jacob's line, with the accursed line of Ham, King Hamor's line, and Satan would, would have liked nothing better than that. I think we'll call it a night right there.